From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It has been a week of playoffs and pain in Georgia sports, and it is not over yet. The Braves suffered a brutal 13-1 defeat against the St. Louis Cardinals on Wednesday, ending their postseason run. And Atlanta United is headed for the start of the Major League Soccer Cup playoffs against the New England Revolution on Saturday. Whether you're mourning the prospects of the Braves or donning the red and black stripe of United, emotions are high. Another run's going to score as the Braves cannot secure the strikeout. It is 10 to nothing, St. Louis in the first inning. We are the A. To dive into the minds of sports fans, we have Dr. Seth Norholm joining us this morning. He's associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Wayne State University School of Medicine, where he is also scientific director at the Neuroscience Center for Anxiety, Stress, and Trauma. Joining us on the line now from Detroit, Dr. Norholm, hello. Hi, how are you today? Well, tough couple of days here. Uh, you lived in Atlanta for a long time, working at Emory in the VA. So you know the emotional roller coaster of following the Braves. They have this big, fancy new stadium and big high hopes for this postseason. But after Wednesday, people are feeling pretty humiliated. And this is a fan base that already ranks 63rd on ESPN's Misery Index. So the level of emotional misery of followers of the four biggest sports. Why are people so unhappy about this team? I think part of it has to do with fandom in general. So if you think about what a fan is, you know, a fan has excessive enthusiasm and intense devotion uh, to their team. And if this fandom becomes linked to your, your own sense of self. And so for, you know, people who live in Atlanta who have been longtime Braves fans and know what this team has been capable of in the past, they look at that as a past success and they say, we, you know, we want to get back to that. And so what's happened over the last few years is there's been a number of disappointments. And so as a fan, because you've adapted or adopted this team as part of yourself, you sort of have to calibrate your feelings. And so I've talked to a few Braves fans this week, you know, in summer, are really excited about the prospect of winning this series and going on to win another series. And others just say, you know, I really just hope we win this game. So Mm -hmm. you'll see this level of recalibration where I want to set my expectations. And the reasons fans set those expectations is because you know, we this association that we have as fans has a real psychological and physiological link to us. We feel up and excited when they win. We feel down and sad when they lose. If there's an exciting play, our adrenaline rises and our heart rate rises and our mood goes up. And if that play fails, it, you know, it's a dropped ball or, uh, you know, a, a home run that's caught at, at the warning track, you know, you feel that let down. You feel that uh, moment. <laughs> yes, and we can hear it in the stadium, certainly, and from all of the groans of, you know, those couch surfers across the state and across the country who are Braves fans. Well, let me, let me ask you a little bit more about that. The fandom, you are adopted as a, you adopt this team as a part of yourself. So, I mean, in the moment, yes, dropped ball, you gasp, um, maybe cheer when something great happens. But does it go much, does it go any further than that, Dr. Norholm, that the idea of redemption for the team, does that mean anything larger for the people who are watching? It's certainly deeper than, you know, that moment in the game, uh, because fandom for many people who follow these teams, 
you know, it's part of what they do. It's part of who they are. And so you're invested in the story. And that story continues, you know, with some rare exceptions like teams moving to a different city. But regardless, you know, people come and go in your lives, jobs come and go, places, you know, in the city change, but there's always the Braves, there's always the Falcons. And so there's this sense that this is a, a constant in my life. And so you look to that for a number of different things. You look at that as an escape from world news, from uh, daily stressors, finances, things like that. And if the team loses, then you've lost that escape. You've lost that positive reinforcer in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, the luster of that escape has already been a little tarnished. I mean, some of this stems to the Braves' move to SunTrust Park in Cobb County back in 2017, a wealthier suburb of the city, wealthier and whiter. And a lot of people there were angry about shelling out for the new facility. And then for people who live in downtown Atlanta, they were angry because the Braves left the actual city of Atlanta. How does that kind of anger about the team's operation translate to the feeling among fans? Yeah, that certainly plays a role. You know, one of the things that comes with fandom is the association you feel with the team. So if you've lived in Atlanta your whole life, if you lived uh, downtown uh, near Turner Field and the Braves were a part of your life and all of a sudden they move, you know, you'll hear a lot of people in Atlanta say the Atlanta Braves are no longer the Atlanta Braves because they're out in Cobb County. Uh, So the fans certainly feel that. So your point is absolutely correct. If you move the team geographically from the city, it's going to create a gap with the fans. And so there's this disconnect between the core fans who identify because this is my hometown and the fans who are fans of the team regardless of where they are. Well, that's, you know, beyond the individual feelings is the sense of belonging. And one of the things that has been identified as playing a part of the role in people sort of divesting themselves as fans of the Braves is race. I mean, downtown is diverse. The wealthy suburbs lean white. Some people say the Braves value white fans more. And in 2014, the Hawks owner, Bruce Levinson, got in hot water when an email surfaced showing his explicit preference for white fans. Then when the Braves moved to Cobb County, plenty of people thought, you know, you're just catering to a certain demographic. How does that kind of, you know, if you're talking about belonging to a team and belonging to a sense of fandom of team, how does crossing those kind of barriers how does that how do they feel about embracing the team right right absolutely because one of the things that sports has provided to people for a long period of time has been this uh, transcultural connection between people so it didn't matter if you were black white hispanic you know if you would go to a game and you know the Braves had a home run or the Falcons score a touchdown you know you're seeing people high-fiving in the fans that don't know each other at all except for the fact that they have this common fandom and at that moment in time there's no uh, you know there's no recollection of oh this person is different than me and so you're absolutely right when you move the, the Braves from a demographic where it's downtown and it's more diverse and then you move to to the the suburbs where it's a much different demographic you know it's absolutely expected that that group you know whatever it may be however it may be defined whether it's socioeconomic or race is going to say this team left me for this reason Mm -hmm. and so you'll see that drop off in fandom 
Right. But in the end, people have been going to games. I mean, the Braves are on track to set a 12-year attendance record. But could this attendance boom be fair weather fans? I mean, you look at a team like the Cubs went a century without winning a World Series team. I grew up in New England where, you know, we were, it was a dry run for the Red Sox for a long, long time. And the Cubs have an ancient stadium. So do the Red Sox. But Chicagoans still love the Cubs. How, how can a team like the Braves re-earn that loyalty when the glamour of a new stadium and maybe even this playoff series subsides? Yeah, what you want to do, uh, I think, is tap into, you know, there's this transgenerational aspect of fandom, too. So you mentioned the Cubs and the Red Sox and both of those teams experiencing decades of losing and then finally winning, you know, the World Series. And you saw, you know, adults, elderly people, grown men crying when the Cubs won, when the Red Sox won. And they would recollect stories of if only my father or my grandfather had been there to see this. And so you have this transgenerational aspect. You have this common thread that keeps the fans coming. And so what could happen with the Braves is, you know, if this stadium continues to be a success and if the team continues to be successful and these new, uh, you know, transgenerational inherited moments are created where, you know, daughters and fathers and sons are and, and mothers and, and grandparents are going to games together. You know, that's how you build the solid fan base when it becomes not just part of the, the culture of the community, but also the culture of the family. I think success breeds success. So if the team continues to be successful, you, you pull in new fans, you pull in what, you know, what you call fairweather fans, uh, because what can happen is the fandom then, uh, you know, crosses over from just sports fans into a pop cultural and, uh, you know, it steps outside and becomes something positive uh, and more of a fad for the community. And that brings in more fans. You know, you'll oftentimes see when a team comes out of nowhere with success and they've got all these new fans because they're, you know, they want to get part of this positive pop culture aspect of it. Dr. Seth Norholm is with me. He's associate professor of psychiatry at Wayne University. He used to live and work in Atlanta. He was at Emory in the VA for a long time. We're talking about the psychological state of Atlanta sports fans. You talked about transgenerational fandom, but let's look at Atlanta United. This is in pre- relatively new for Atlanta. Right. Huge crowds showing up for these games, smashing attendance records. What are the five stripes doing right? So I think what was recognized there was that there, you know, Atlanta is a, a huge soccer town as far as youth sports are concerned, and so there was this this thirst, this desire for a professional soccer team, and so then when that became a reality, uh, you know, it really took off as far as, as as fandom is concerned, especially because what the United has been able to do, both the organization and the fans, is they've taken the fandom they've they've learned from the european model you know if you ever watch uh, you know english premier league games or international games you see this intense fandom you see chants you see singing you see uh, painted faces you know really getting into the event well that's really what happened with the united just uh, from the beginning is you saw this intense fandom this somewhat novelty of a new team but this base that really wanted a professional soccer team and then you add on top of that that they won the championship so now you've set this standard and this expectation for success 
So it's really going to carry them for a number of years. You know, I think it's going to take a lot for those fans to drop off. You know, they may, they're back in the playoffs now, so they're continuing to be successful. And, you know, if they were to have a dip in, in performance in the next few years, I still think that base, because it started off so strong, is going to remain strong. Well, it's inter- also interesting. Atlanta is a much more cosmopolitan city than it used to be, and the Atlanta team is really diverse. Joseph Martinez is the star, a Dutch coach, uh, for example. And the nature, the very nature of soccer, I think, international soccer, is that people come from all over the world who love it. Is this becoming America's pastime? And what does that mean for the way that we think about sports in America? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting concept if you think about it, because these teams are, of course, associated with different cities. So Atlanta United, uh, D.C. United. Um, but the composition of the team is often not, you know, local citizens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of teams where there's a, a local hero story where somebody grew up watching a team and now they play for that team. But yeah, you're right. For the most part, these rosters are international rosters. And that's, that's to be said for, you know, most of the major sports. Uh, hockey is very diverse internationally. Uh, uh, football, maybe not so much, but soccer, definitely. Uh, so I think, yeah, this is going to be more the norm, and it's, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly seen, you know, fans embrace this concept of wearing jerseys with Martinez and, and uh, you know, international and diverse last names, and it becomes part of the appeal is, you know, for example, my children who are all you know, Atlanta United fans, um, you know, they want to know about these players. They want to know about the countries they come from. They want to know. So it really becomes educational. Stick around. We'll be back with Dr. Seth Norholm. We're talking about the psychological highs and lows of Atlanta sports fans. I'm Virginia Prescott. We'll be back after a break with On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Well, Wednesday night saw a big upset and great humiliation for the Atlanta Braves, but hopes are not completely lost for the city. Atlanta United starts its playoff season tomorrow night against the New England Revolution. My guest is Dr. Seth Norholm, former Atlantan. We're unpacking the psychology of a sports fan, especially when following a big losing or winning team. What does it mean to the players? What is the impact of having the the idea of fans, people supporting you, being part of that tribe? Yeah, the players. It's interesting because that's you know it's sort of a mixed bag because you know each player has different motivations and and different reasons for wanting to play the game or wanting to play in a certain place. Um, but what what you'll see in terms of you know you think of home field advantage you know the it's commonly believed that home field advantage helps the team because the fans are behind them they know the stadium they know the field um, but that can actually backfire and and a team will be you know collectively self-conscious about their performance and know that if we lose this we're going to hear about it at the end of the game <laughs> you know we're going to know immediately that our fans are not happy uh, so that home field advantage can quickly turn. Uh, but it's a really interesting psychological experiment to watch a sporting event. You know, the brains of fans work very much like the brains of the players. Mm-hmm. They feel the same disappointment. They feel the same elation. 
Well, besides the emotional effects, researchers from the INSEAD Business School found that dietary problems and heart-related illnesses rose significantly in cities dealing with major sports loss. So, Dr. Norholm, what is your recommended course of action for a depressed fan base? Right. And so I, I remember when I spoke to people after the, the Falcons, I remember a few years ago, they were up by you know, 25 points and then lost that Super Bowl. Uh, you know, then people are asking, well, how do you cope with this? And you know, my, my advice back then was to learn a little bit from the Buffalo Bills fans of the 1990s, because that Buffalo Bills team went to the Super Bowl four straight years and lost four straight times. And so you, that's when it's time to step back and take a look at the season itself. This was a great season. It had highs. It had these highlight moments, these moments that we could share. And uh, to think, and this is really what works well for sports fans, is there's always next year. And that's what keeps a lot of the fans of losing teams coming back. It's, you know, it's, it's perfectly normal and acceptable to uh, quote-unquote mourn the loss, but then put it in perspective and say, yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, there's next year. I enjoyed the time that I, you know, spent going to the games this season. Um, and to really focus on the positives. Hmm. Well, as a daughter of a longtime diehard Red Sox fan, <laughs> there was always hope for another season, as you're pointing out. But there's something else that was going on there. I think the idea that even belonging to a losing team meant belonging. So, right. so. What does that need in humans that we're seeing right now, uh, a divided America, the sense of sort of you're on this side, I'm on that side. Is sports a place where we can work out that kind of need to belong in a safe way? Yeah, I, absolutely. Sports is is a, a venue where you can have that camaraderie. And the appeal for sports for the longest time has been because it was outside of current events, because it was apolitical. And, you know, even if you look back in, in recent history, after 9-11, when the World Series started up again in New York and uh, President Bush threw out the first pitch, I mean, that was in a, a really um, engaging moment that brought together the country. So sports has that power to bring people together. The problem is when those current events or those political beliefs or religious beliefs or whatever they may be spill into the sports. And then what can happen is you, the fans will walk away because their safe space or their, you know, their escape from all of that has been taken away. Um, and I think that's been reflected in the situation with Colin Kaepernick. You know, he is currently not an employed uh, NFL player with tremendous talent, but because his stance became a political stance, uh, it, it ended up dividing more fans and unifying fans. Do we just want to put ourselves into groups? Is that what's going on with human beings? <laughs> yeah, simply put, we, we have this uh, in-group, out-group bias. Um, so I was uh, talking to some students the other day, and you know, if I took my class and I said, okay, this side of the class was going to wear green shirts this semester, this side of the class is going to wear white shirts. It doesn't take much for the green shirts and the white shirts to start saying things about each other, to start treating each other differently, to start deprecating one another, because we have this in-group, out-group mentality. And that goes way back to our ancestors, where there were associations that had to uh, 
you know, battle each other for resources and for food and water. Now, ideally, you would want those groups to have their their shared individual values, but also respect the values of the other group. But mm-hmm. more often than not, what you see is hostility and friction between the groups. So despite that, despite that hostility, despite the stress, is it ultimately worth it? Is it a net positive psychologically to be a sports fan? <laughs> I would say yes. Given you know the the many positives that come out of the camaraderie uh, that come out of the changes in mood and the elation that comes with the fandom, I think you know overall yes, it's it, you know even if you I'll give you a good example, um, you know if you go to a sporting event and they do the kiss cam, mm-hmm. and they'll go around they'll obviously they'll show the couples of different ages and then most stadiums the last shot will be uh, like a Falcons fan next to a Saints fan. And, you know, obviously they're not going to kiss, but it's good natured. It's a recognition. And here are two, quote unquote, rivals, but they're sitting next to each other and they're recognizing their commonality despite the different colors of their shirts. Dr. Norholm, uh, don't know who you're cheering for or if you're going to divulge at this point, but thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure. Thank you. Dr. Seth Norholm, he's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Wayne State University School of Medicine. An Atlanta-based ministry and a Native American tribe recently came together to address a nearly 200-year-old injustice. GBB's Ricky Bevington found out more. When the federal government forcibly removed the Wyandotte Nation from Ohio in 1843, the tribe gave three acres of its sacred land to the United Methodist Church to protect and maintain it. It was probably in the back of our ancestors' mind that uh, they would eventually come back. It took 176 years. That's Chief of the Wyandotte Nation, Billy Friend. Today, the land includes the original 19th century mission church, as well as a Christian cemetery and a Native American burial ground. During the ceremony, the church formally returned the deed to the land back to the nation. The Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church is now based in Atlanta, and I'm joined by the ministry's General Secretary, Thomas Kemper. He's in studio with me. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. So tell me more about the early relationship between the church and the Wyandotte Nation. Yeah, John Stewart was our first missionary in the tradition of what today is Global Ministries. And in 1816, he went to be in mission among the Wyandots in Ohio. He was a black man, which was very unusual at that time to be our first missionary coming from that background. And he went to live and farm with the Wyandotte. And what really drew them to him was his singing more than even his teaching. Even the chief and everybody was talking about that importance of the singing. And he created, I think, a very respectful relationship because not always missionaries and indigenous people had the best relationship. Very often it led to death and the destruction of a culture. But here it was really a moment where the two came together in a life-giving moment, I believe. Here's what Chief Billy Friend said about learning that the nation would own the land again. We as tribes, we have to fight for everything that we that we get, especially land, uh, you know, land that was formerly ours. But the Methodists came to us this time and, and made the offer to give the land back. And why did you decide to return the land in northern Ohio? We felt it was it was time to return the land. It was given to us in trust, and 
it was um, last Saturday a very emotional moment. You have to imagine that basically for 176 years, some Methodists over all these years kept this land. They they cared for it. They kept the church uh, going, the building up, and and now it was really time to say to the Wyandots, now now you take it back, and we have done what we had promised. And you talked about the emotions. Describe that day of the ceremony, and you were there. You handed the deed back to Chief Friend. Talk about the feelings on both sides among church members and Wyandotte Nation members. It was um, extremely emotional. I mean, I was there at the moment when I handed the deed to, to the chief, and the chief had tears in his eyes. So I had some words prepared, but my, my voice cracked at that moment because I saw the tears in his eyes, and, and I started to cry. And there were six, 700 people uh, in the open air uh, really witnessing this moment. It, it, it was deeply emotional. You know, we'll be forever grateful to the to the Methodist, forever indebted to them for keeping the church preserved, keeping it restored to the place where it is today. It was a it was a, it was a great day for our people. And the Wyandot did donate ten thousand dollars to contribute to the upkeep of the church on the land because the church, the Methodists, still run the church, but not the land itself. How will the UMC maintain the relationship in the future? Yeah, we have uh, clearly said to the Wyandots and to Chief Billy that we want to continue this relationship, even though we have given the land back and the church building back to the Wyandots. So the local United Methodist Church, which is called the John Stewart Memorial Church, will continue the upkeep because the Wyandots are all in Oklahoma. So they need some local presence, and that will be through the United Methodist Church. Thomas Kemper is the General Secretary of Global Ministries for the United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ricky, for the opportunity. And we learned more about the Wyandotte Nation. They were part of the Huron Confederacy and moved to Detroit in the 18th century. They later settled in Ohio, where they were the last tribe in the state to be forced out by the Indian Removal Act. The Wyandotte were also instrumental in the founding of both Detroit and Kansas City, Kansas, over the course of their tribal history. Today, there are more than 6,600 members with 1,500 in Oklahoma, the rest spread out across the country. For GPB News, I'm Ricky Bevington. we vote in Georgia will look differently next year now that the state has purchased new voting machines. The Secretary of State's office is inviting voters to try them out at demonstrations across the state. GPB's Stephen Fowler headed down to the Georgia National Fair in Perry to find out more. The smell of fried Oreos and the sounds of carnival rides fill the air at the Georgia National Fair on a Monday morning in Perry. It's the 30th anniversary of the event, and the state's finest agriculture, livestock, and arts are on full display at the fairgrounds. But inside the Georgia-grown building, around the corner from samples of cold, refreshing Georgia milk, sits a unique display of decorative peanuts, pumpkins, and a makeshift polling place. So basically what you do is you grab your card and you insert it into the machine, as so. That's 15-year-old Camilla Negron from Jenkins High School in Savannah. She may not yet be old enough to vote on the new ballot marking devices next fall, but Negron is one of several student volunteers showing fairgoers how the new system works. 
She's part of an ambassador's program, the Secretary of State's office designed to immerse high schoolers into the voting process. I'm helping people understand how easy voting is, and I feel like I'm contributing to our future in a way because I'm allowing people to see how easy it is and make them realize, oh, I can just vote in like two minutes. The State Fair is one of many places the Secretary of State's office plans to bring the new $107 million voting system for Georgians to interact with. The Dominion ballot marking devices will replace 17-year-old touchscreen machines a federal judge said cannot be used after 2019. In some ways, the new machines are similar to how we currently cast our ballots, like the touchscreen. But the new process records your vote on a paper printout with a QR code, summary text of the races, and your selections. Savannah Bananas! <laughs> Negron walks me through those steps. You check in on an iPad, make your selections on the touchscreen, and then insert the paper ballot into a scanner to be counted. The stakes are a little lower in this mock election than 2020. What is the best ice cream flavor? Obviously, cookies and cream. But Camilla Negron's teacher, Carolyn Perry, says having the machines at the fair is necessary to having people trust the electoral process. So I think there's a lot of stakeholders involved with voting in our state, and we've had some struggles making voting um, transparent as possible. I think this is a good step. It's in the right direction of making sure that people feel that voting is fair. Not everyone shares the same enthusiasm and optimism about the upgraded machines. A federal lawsuit filed by a group of election integrity advocates and Georgia voters that challenges the security of BMDs is still pending. They say the new machines, much like the old ones, are vulnerable to hacking. By Monday afternoon, more than 1,600 people have tried out the Dominion voting system at the fair, including Melanie Hand, who drove an hour and a half up I-75 from Adel to visit the fair. She happened to walk by the voting machines and says she volunteers as a poll worker back home. I'm sure there will be a lot of anxious people, but I'm, I'm hoping everybody will see how easy it is and that everyone will come out and vote. Only a handful of the state's 159 counties will test the new touchscreen devices in elections this fall. Others will use the old machines and still others will test out hand-marked paper ballots as a backup system. The official rollout for the new ballot marking devices is scheduled for March 2020 in time for the presidential preference primary. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Perry. Coming up, once the Center for Socialization and Shopping, hundreds of malls across America now lay dormant. We're going to take a look at how these once popular spaces can be retooled and reactivated for their surrounding communities. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Season three of the Netflix series Stranger Things is now out, and most of the episodes unfold in a place that may be familiar to you if you live in metro Atlanta. The show's fictional Starcourt Mall exists in the real world as Gwinnett Place Mall. Earth, America, Indiana, Hawkins, a growing patriotic community, and a shining example of the American dream. Today, Hawkins is taking another step into the future with the brand new Star Court Mall. While the mall in Stranger Things is lively and bustling, the real one is dead. And that term doesn't mean the crowds are light. It refers to an empty, abandoned mall void of tenants. Dead malls are popping up across the country. Ellen Dunham-Jones researches how communities are grappling with these casualties of changing American consumption patterns. She's director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech and an expert on urban redevelopment. Joining us in the studio, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So many people do know a mall in or around their community, no longer open. But what do the real numbers look like? How many malls are dead or dying around? the country? Well, there are are approximately, at one point in time, 1,500 properties that were an enclosed mall. Today, we're down to 1,000. And of that 1,000, easily another 250, 300 are clearly dying. Um, The industry prefers to say evolving, because the reality is retail is constantly morphing. There's plenty of, uh, of changes that is that is normal, but the degree to which the just mall retail stores are closing is at absolute record levels. How about here in Georgia? So Georgia is very much dealing with it, paralleling the rest of the country. Metro Atlanta, there are approximately 32 properties that were enclosed malls. Already half of those are not enclosed malls. So we're actually sort of ahead in terms of the numbers uh, that have decl- have already closed. But we're actually, I think, surprisingly a little behind in terms of them really being retrofitted into very different new kinds of places. Yeah, and that's your work, how they're being redeveloped, how they're being redesigned and reused. But are those numbers, you said Georgia's a little behind other metropolitan areas? I'd say in terms of the redevelopments, what we're seeing in Georgia are a lot of partial redevelopments, partial re-inhabitations. It sort of surprises me that in Atlanta, the biggest redevelopment we have is the former Shannon Mall or Union Station which was in Union City, has been demolished and replaced with a soundstage for the movie industry mm-hmm. and a very, very large, almost million-square-foot distribution center for FedEx or UPS. You know. Yeah, so these are, the, these are the ways that our economies are transforming, the kind Absolutely. of businesses that we're investing in. But let's go back to the 70s and 80s when the malls offered convenience, a gathering place for the community, parking, I think, was an important thing there. You argue that in a place that is as hot and muggy as Georgia, they offered something else. Air conditioning. Absolutely. I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey. When I was in high school, the first mall near us opened, and it was a real. It was cool to go, and I mean literally. My high school wasn't air conditioned. My home wasn't air conditioned. Where my dad worked wasn't air conditioned. Nowadays, that's not such a great bargaining chip. I mean, you know, most of us are living and working and driving in air conditioned. Um, places to the degree that mall shopping is a leisure activity, 
a lot of us are craving to be outdoors, even if it is a little hot and muggy. Mm. I think I so we're seeing that main streets are coming back. We're seeing uh, a lot of even new retail that are is being formatted more like a traditional. outdoor main street. Like a walkable main street kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Well, that, that has been a big story, that brick-and-mortar stores have been struggling in the online shopping era as well. But you argue that that's just the final nail in the coffin of these malls. How did supply and demand of retail options and shoppers play a role? It's a rather astonishing I mean, how much square footage in the U.S. is devoted to retail? We have twice as much square footage as any other country. Canada and Australia look the closest to us, and we still have about double the amount of retail square footage. And especially as big box stores really came into play in the 90s, they knew that sales per square foot were declining, but they didn't have another way to make money. The answer was simply build more square feet. Hmm. Retail, of course, also depends on people with disposable incomes. There's been a lot of talk about the hollowing out of the middle class in the United States. Is that borne out in terms of spending money at at malls? Absolutely. And one sees a lot of patterns. Parts of the country where there in particular have been a decline in middle class jobs is where you see even more dead malls than in other places. Mm -hmm. But people still need a place to gather, obviously. Why do you think online shopping has become so much more successful than malls? People doing it individually inside of their homes. Well, the online shopping... It's certainly it's it's a big force and it continues to grow, but it's really still about 12 percent of total retail sales. It's not as if online is is really the only thing to blame. We over retailed both as big box um, malls tend to locate at highway spoke intersections mm-hmm. around cities. We have built out the highway system. It's not only about online shopping. But it's certainly true that the retail that is doing well these days is retail that provides an experience you can't get online. Uh Brick and mortar will never compete with online for price or quantity. But it can compete on on quality of experience. Mm -hmm. So you have some uh, malls providing the experience of luxury, marble floors and perfumed air, and others provide the experience of community. And it's local small businesses that you, uh, you, where you actually know some of these folks. Um, other retail is providing a, a huge explosion in the amount of food and beverage, gyms going into retail, former retail spaces, mm-hmm. uh, things you can't do online. So a serving community needs. But besides the loss of these meeting places in, in the communities where malls are dead, how else are they affected by closing of malls? They're affected in a lot of ways. Uh, when, you know, the retail dies, you, there's a lot of loss of tax revenue, loss of jobs, loss of those gathering spaces and activities. And it also tends to start to trigger a perception, at least, of a downward spiral of blight. Hmm. Again, if you are losing, you don't have as many options to shop in place in your community. You're probably going to go even with more online. And so you have that increase in the delivery trips. You mean mean like the trucks on the road and the the, the delivery trucks? The delivery truck. The average suburban house generates about 10 trips per day. And yet, even though the number of trips that are made by the occupants has gone down slightly. 
the number of delivery trips to that house has skyrocketed. Well, we know what that's done to traffic. Absolutely. Ellen Dunham-Jones is with me. She is director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech. She's a leading urbanist. And we're talking about transforming dead or abandoned malls, these empty shells of many millions across the country of square footage, of footage that have been kind of left behind, although some are transformed. And you've been researching, your research focuses on three steps to repurpose these empty spaces of malls. There's a redevelopment, re-inhabitation, and re-greening. Now, briefly define those three terms. Sure. Redevelopment means you're actually demolishing most of the mall um, or prop- retail property. It might be a strip mall. It might be big box. Uh, and you're redeveloping it. In many cases, we're seeing folks urbanize that site and put in a street grid, walkable blocks with retail at ground floor and office and apartments up above. Around the country, there's about 120 of those that are in various stages of completion, approximately 60 of them that have been completed. So that's that's really the redevelopment. Right. When so you're tearing it down, starting over. And starting over in a more walkable, urban, possibly transit served, but definitely mixed use um, configuration that allows that growing portion of the population that are seeking a more urban lifestyle, but are in are located in a suburban location. How about regreening? So regreening, I wish there were even more examples. It's only about 5% of my database right now. But Prior to the Clean Water Act in 1970, it was absolutely normal practice to drain the wetlands, culvert the creeks, and build commercial properties just right on top of places where, frankly, we never should have built. And now that more and more of the land upstream has been paved, we are getting more and more extreme storms with climate change. The, those And those culverts are aging. A lot of them are failing. We should be trying to depave a lot of this unnecessary retail and unnecessary parking spaces and reconstruct those wetlands and put in parks and stormwater parks to, to help us address a lot of uh, the changes in climate and things. All right. How about re-inhabitation? So is that taking those old spaces and building or putting new businesses Just, in them? Absolutely. Putting new uses. So And more community-serving uses. So the biggest trend actually is office space, moving into malls. Office is the number one. A lot of medical and educational facilities. So a school? Absolutely. Lots of schools from elementary all the way to college. Um, Lots of really great examples, actually, of of schools. How about in Georgia? Any examples of redevelopment, re-inhabitation, or re-greening here? Absolutely. So in Georgia, uh, again, as as I said, we're, we're Mostly doing partial redevelopments. There's um, so the Shannon Mall with the Atlanta Metro Studios and the big distribution warehouse for DHL. Uh, Underground Atlanta was is being redeveloped. That's really a not a typical mall. That's in in downtown. Uh, But North Point Mall up in Alpharetta is has been approved to be. A good chunk of their land is going to be redeveloped as mixed use, walkable. They're putting in, replacing the, their Sears store with over 300 apartments, 15 acres of civic amenity space, trails, a stormwater park. Um, so that one I'm really looking forward to seeing. And then it's not so obvious, but Phipps Plaza, they've built a, a large apartment complex 
300-unit high-rise, and they're under construction right now, a 13-story office building. But you you wouldn't necessarily know that it was actually the owners of the mall. They had owned this land adjacent to them. But they sort of see the writing on the wall and have said, well, we had thought We'd own that land in case we wanted to expand the mall, but they're seeing that instead it benefits them to actually introduce more of a population on site who will use the mall. And so instead of the food court, it's becoming a food hall Mm -hmm. and, you know, it'll be more of a sense of a community than strictly a mall. So, so you mentioned Phipps, and I think of Lennox. You, that was that fits the bill of the luxury mall that you were talking about. I'm assuming. So, some of them seem to be thriving. What are they doing right? I think that the malls that are that are thriving have are constantly refreshing a lot of their their stores, so they don't get too stale. But I mean, you know, you do see certain patterns. If they have an Apple store, they're going to do really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain. Certain stores that will distinguish a lot of the high the the high end. This is such a an American story. You know, cars come around and people are worried about what's going to happen to the carriage and, of course, the telegraph and typewriters, all of that kind of thing. Should we care if old school malls become um, a chapter or a relic of history? I mean, it's funny. Uh, I really hope that at least one mall will get historic preservation status. And it should be a Victor Gruen mall. He was the original designer, and he designed... That's the barbell-shaped kind of mall? Well, he... Oh, he did some that are even more sci-fi. They're Mm -hmm. kind of triangular with domes. And, you know, I mean, at least one should definitely uh, be preserved. What's particularly interesting to me, actually, in terms of the preservation story, is the reverse of this. All things go in cycles. When the malls opened up in the 1970s, the 1970s was really the heyday. It started in the 50s, but by the 70s, we were cranking them out all over the place. And in the process, killed an enormous amount of retail in the the little mom-and-pop shops Mm -hmm. on main streets throughout small towns that were just wiped out uh, by the malls. Well, now that the malls are dying, guess what? A lot of those are coming back. Um, So Gwinnett Place Mall in Duluth, Georgia. Duluth has been reinvesting in their downtown. Parsons Alley has been this new extension, has won a lot of design awards. And so there's a real opportunity for communities to capture that social capital, that sense of a gathering space, that as the mall uh, as malls are dying and actually reinvest it in their original downtowns and i'm really delighted to see there's a, a loads of examples i think of throughout georgia of small towns historic main streets that are coming back and usually with some help um and even brand new downtowns kind of avalon kinds of places and um and, and you mentioned with some help, so tax incentives, grants from the city, state to, to kind of reinvest in downtowns? It's more people. It's honestly people. So one of, one of my favorite stories in um, Pleasant Ridge, Ohio, is a sub old suburb of Cincinnati that its little three-block downtown was, had just been vacant for years. And a group of volu- local volunteers found out that if they got it designated as a community entertainment district, 
the cost of a liquor license would go down from $25,000 to $2,500. They then targeted all the veteran food truck operators and said, hey, are you getting tired of driving around? Would you like a real brick-and-mortar location maybe in addition to your food truck. And it worked. And it's it's just fabulous to sort of see this repopulated little, down, little downtown. And it's quirky, it's local, it's very mom and pop. And it really, it was just, you know, done by a bunch of volunteers. And no, not an Orange Julius stand in sight. No, but there's an open drinking. I think they're allowed to, you know, Changes carry, everything. carry drinks around uh, within that three-block area. Ellen Dunham-Jones, a leading urbanist and director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech and also host of the Redesigning Cities podcast series. It's also, of course, because, you know, there are students working on it. It's a video series, too. You can find a link at gpbnews.org. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.